Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we are rejoining the story of Sophia Duleep Singh, uh, a princess from India who became a very vocal part of the movement for women's suffrage in Britain. And at this point in the story, where we are picking up from last time, she's living in Britain. Her parents and her little brother have sadly died. And she is 17 and effectively living off the goodwill of her godmother, Queen Victoria. In spite of ongoing lessons in deportment, the teenage Sophia was viewed as fragile, quiet, shy, sensitive, damaged from the series of tragedies in her life, and very uncomfortable with the attention that came along with being a princess. However, being favored by the queen meant that as she approached her 18th birthday, plans were put in place for her future and the futures of her two sisters and her two half-sisters. This involved an income, dowries for the two oldest, uh, the two oldest sisters, and an official coming out for Catherine, Bamba, and Sophia Duleep Singh. Faced with the prospect of having to look after herself, Sophia really threw herself into her studies, both her academic work and her deportment. She and her sisters also took a tour of the continent, which grew from Sophia's then surprising request to go to Germany to refine her skills in the language. Accompanying the sisters were two ladies' maids and Lena Schaefer, their former governess who had stayed with Sophia's older sisters while they were at university. In case anyone who heard part one is confused, that is the the governess who came along after the nanny who had looked at them when they were little, looked after them when they were little, had died. Once the sisters arrived back in Britain, Queen Victoria gave Sophia a grace and favor residence at Faraday House at Hampton Court. And Hampton Court was home to a number of mostly widows and unmarried ladies who had some kind of standing in British society, but usually no other place to live. Sophia filled her new home with music and animals, and now, living independently, she actually really started to blossom. But even though Sophia's lessons had refined her behavior and her formal debut had gone quite well, she didn't grow into quite the Indian British princess that the monarchy had hoped. Like her father, she was extravagant, spending most of her income on clothes and jewelry. And she became quite the social butterfly. She also took up a whole lot of pastimes that were not regarded as entirely appropriate for young ladies. Against the advice of doctors of the day who thought they were too exciting and could damage the reproductive organs, Sophia bought a bicycle for herself and went on to make headlines for her cycling. She also bred dogs, joining the kennel club and becoming an extremely accomplished breeder. She bred and showed Borzois and later Pomeranians as well. She also posed with them for photographs dressed in only the most fashionable clothing. She was a very accomplished horseback rider. She smoked exotic tobaccos. She took her sister Bamba halfway around the world on a con- on a covert mission to get her back to India because both sisters knew that the British government would never give them permission to do so if they asked. And when that mission didn't work, Bamba went to the United States to try to become a doctor, although she had to return to Britain when Northwestern University decided not to let women study there anymore. Bamba was furious, so much so that Catherine came back from Germany, where she had been living with Lena Schaefer, to try to console her bereft sister. This didn't really work. This was at this point three, 
grown young women sharing a household together. And Sophia's behavior really rubbed her sisters the wrong way. Catherine and Bamba hated her smoking and they did not like her dogs and they really didn't want to socialize with British aristocracy, which was one of Sophia's favorite pastimes. Didn't like the dogs, man. That one's tough to get through. <laughs> then on January 22nd, 1901, as is famously known, Queen Victoria died. The coronation of Edward VII provided a distraction for the sisters and an unexpected way to get back to India like Bamba wanted to do so desperately. And we're going to talk about what happened in all of this arena after we pause for a brief moment from one of our fabulous sponsors. Now, the story of how uh, how Sophia and her sisters did get to go back to India as the monarch of the British Empire, Edward VII would also be the emperor of India. And India prepared a derber, which was an official reception to welcome the new king. Or what was really happening was his younger brother, who was sent as his surrogate because he did not want to go himself. The three Dilip Singh sisters all applied to go. And while their applications were denied, those denials were worded in such a way that it seemed as though they might go, but just later, not right now. They basically decided it was later now, and they went themselves in secret. (laughs) They traveled under pseudonyms. They went separately so that there would be less chance that they would raise suspicion. And then once they got there, it was too late for the British government to do anything about it, except for to close off the normal diplomatic channels that they would have had access to based on the fact that they were princesses. So they wound up making their way to Lahore and staying with people who remembered their father and respected their family name. So initially, when they finally arrived in India, the three sisters did travel together. But eventually, Sophia started a tour of India on horseback that her sisters could simply not keep up with. They eventually returned to Britain separately. On the way home, Sophia witnessed the plight of Indian laborers and sailors known as Laskers. These were people who were often hired out of poverty and then exploited. They were forced to work in dangerous and degrading conditions, often without enough food or water to actually sustain them. And then after the ships they were working on reached often other continents, they generally would wind up abandoned in port with no money, no resources, no work, and sometimes not even an understanding of the local language. So when Sophia got home, she started using her money and social connections to try to advocate for better treatment for the Laskers. Although this work made her feel useful, she really deeply missed her sisters. She became increasingly morose and lonely until 1906, three years after she had left her sisters in India. That's when she got a letter from Bamba asking that she come back to Lahore right away because someone was trying to kill her. So Sophia did make it to Lahore as fast as she could. However, she determined her sister was probably not the target of poisoning by anybody On the other hand, she did determine that Bamba, who had been really resentful of the British, understandably, for much of their lives, would probably never come back to Britain to live again. She had really made a home for herself in India. Bamba had also started to make friends with the movement for Indian self-governance. This was a growing movement led by Lala Lajpat Rai, Gopal Krishna Gokhale, and later Mohandas Karamchand Gandhi, also known as Mahatma. As this movement for self-governance grew, violence broke out, and at the same time, so did a plague. Sophia took to disinfecting their luggage repeatedly as they traveled. 
She taught herself to write backwards in the hope that if anyone found her journal, they wouldn't be able to read it and learn of her sister's growing ties to the movement for Indian nationalism. Sophia returned to Britain in the spring of 1907. And once there, she once again started to feel useless. However, in 1908, she became involved with the Women's Social and Political Union, or the WSPU. This was the most radical arm of the movement for women's suffrage in Britain. I do want to make it clear that there were multiple different organizations working for the cause of getting the right to vote for women. This was the most radical of them. So there's a misperception among some people that like the entire movement was completely radical from beginning to end. And people like to throw this around in sometimes a very trollish kind of way on the Internet. Yeah, there were lots of different factors in the movement, as is the case in basically every social movement in history. So I also want to make it clear that at this point, only adult men who owned property could actually vote. So not everyone who was male could vote, but zero women could vote. Some of the other organizations that were working to get women the right to vote included the National Union of Women's Suffrage Societies, which was led by Millicent Fawcett, and the Women's Franchise League. Also, we're going to be using the word suffragette because this part of the movement really owned that particular term, while others who were fighting for the right for women to vote preferred the word suffragist. Sophia started her work by raising funds. And then she went to meetings, in part to attract people who wanted to see a princess. And soon she was a visible figure in the WSPU. And its leader, Emmeline Pankhurst, tried to think of ways to put someone with Sophia's clout and status to good use. The suffragettes in general used a lot of the same tactics we would think of today when trying to advocate for change. They circulated petitions and pamphlets, gave speeches, held rallies, and wrote letters. But especially when it came to the WSPU, they also broke windows and threw rocks and set things on fire and engaged in other more violent acts of destruction. The WSPU specifically decided that these were legitimate protest strategies in 1909. That summer, Marion Wallace Dunlop was the first suffragette to go on a hunger strike demanding to be recognized as a political prisoner after using a large rubber stamp to deface the main entrance of Parliament. She was eventually freed when authorities feared she would die of starvation otherwise. Other suffragettes started employing the same technique. Eventually, authorities turned to force-feeding rather than freeing hunger strikers. This is a pretty horrifying process being force-fed, and there were women in prison who were force-fed literally hundreds of times. Another aspect of the suffrage movement hinged on the fact that women had to pay taxes but could not vote. So circling back to the idea of taxation without representation. The Women's Tax Resistance League formed that October to protest this, and Sophia joined it as well. King Edward VII died on May 6th of 1910, and he was succeeded by George V, who was not nearly as invested in the welfare of the Duleep Singhs as King Edward or Queen Victoria had been. As Sophia's involvement in the movement and the suffrage movement continued to grow, and the WSPU became more radical, King George would become increasingly suspicious of her. And this is really when uh, when Sophia's involvement became tied to some of the most uh, rem- memorable and sometimes horrifying parts of the movement for women's suffrage. Shortly after Edward VII's death, a conciliation bill was introduced to the House of Commons. And if this bill became law... It was going to give a limited number of women who were mostly women who owned property the right to vote. 
It did seem primed to become a law. It looked like it was going to succeed. But then a series of maneuvers by Prime Minister Herbert Henry Asquith had stalled it, and it suddenly seemed doomed to failure. About 300 suffragettes planned to protest on November 18th, which was the day that Parliament was returning to session. However, this protest did not go well. As the women approached, a line of police cut them off, and things quickly became violent. Police manhandled the protesters and knocked them down, sometimes repeatedly. Women reported being groped, kicked, sexually assaulted, and menaced by officers on horseback. Two women later died of their injuries, and because at that time people believed being hit in the breast could cause cancer, the ordeal was also psychologically terrifying for many of the women who was who were there long after the event was over. This was the protest that became known as Black Friday. And Sophia Dulip Singh was there. She saw another woman being thrown to the ground over and over and over again by the same officer. Every time, she would pull herself back to her feet, only to be thrown down again. So Sophia shoved her way through the crowd and screamed at this officer until he dropped the woman and backed away from her. After Sophia made sure this woman wasn't seriously injured, she followed the officer, continuing to berate him and had the presence of mind to note his badge number. Sophia was one of the 115 women and four men arrested after Black Friday. She was charged with obstructing the police. Afterward, Sophia wrote to Winston Churchill, who was then the Home Secretary, describing the police brutality that she had witnessed. Her note was passed on to the police commissioner, who ultimately ruled that the officer had done nothing wrong. (laughs) Sophia disagreed with this intensely, so she continued to write about it, sending more and more letters and refusing to let the matter rest until Winston Churchill put a note in her file dated December 17, 1910, saying that she should not be answered anymore. On February 6, 1911, King George V was to speak before Parliament. As part of a planned protest that day, Sophia threw herself in front of the Prime Minister's car as it departed Downing Street, brandishing a banner that said, Give Women the Vote. This time, perhaps because she was Queen Victoria's goddaughter and the Queen's grandson was the one giving the speech, she was not arrested. The newspapers had a field day, though. The Queen's goddaughter being a suffragette and literally throwing herself in front of the Prime Minister's car was big, big news. During the 1911 census, many women in the suffrage movement refused to be counted as another act of protest. Sophia was one of these, writing no vote, no census across her paperwork. She then escalated her tax protest by refusing to pay to license her dogs. She then refused to pay a number of other fees related to her household and staff, all because they were essentially taxes. When she was summoned to the Petty Sessions Court, she sent a lawyer who read a statement in which she said she would not pay the fines or the fee the court levied on her. Bailiffs came to Sophia's house to collect the money that was owed. She said she would give it to them as soon as she had the right to vote. Obviously, they were not going to give her the right to vote, so the bailiffs took a diamond ring out of her jewelry box, which was put up for auction. On the day of the auction, suffragettes commandeered most of the seats in the auction house, and they all refused to bid on Sophia's ring, which meant the auctioneer had to keep reopening the bid at lower and lower dollar amounts, until finally it reached the sum of 10 pounds. That's when artist Louise Jopling Rowe bought it for that 10 pounds, then handed it to Sophia, who was in the auction house, and all of the suffragettes in attendance basically had a big party. 
Sophia became ever closer to Emmeline Pankhurst and the other leaders of the WSPU in the years that followed. After Pankhurst returned from a trip to the U.S. in 1912, the WSPU took another turn toward the militant. They smashed the windows of the Royal Courts of Justice with hammers, along with the windows of other buildings, and they set things on fire. This increasing militancy lost them some support in Parliament, and a second conciliation bill started to flounder. The violence escalated from there, with the suffragettes making small bombs and ruining the mail. Other organizations within the movement came to increasingly criticize the WSPU's tactics and distance themselves from them because they thought they were their actions were beginning to affect ordinary citizens, not just government officials. Sophia, though, supported the WSPU wholeheartedly, and fighting down a fear of public speaking that had previously prevented her from accepting requests to speak at rallies and meetings, she began to appear on stage to show this support. Her support of the WSPU never wavered, even when their favored protest technique turned to arson. Sophia also started selling the WSPU newspaper, which was called The Suffragette, outside the gates of Hampton Court Palace. Remember, that's where her grace and favor apartment was. And uh, to King George's mind, this was kind of the last straw. He started trying to figure out if there was some way he could evict her. At that point, Emily Davidson had martyred herself by throwing her body in front of his horse during a race, and arsonists had burned down the king's stand at the racetrack, so he was getting a little tired of suffragettes and their what maybe was viewed as nonsense. However, he also knew that no matter how they tried to spin it, evicting his grandmother's goddaughter from her grace and favor apartment would look really bad. Instead, they closed the picture galleries at Hampton Court to cut down on the number of visitors in the area, which had a trickle-down effect that was devastating to local businesses. Sophia persisted, seeming determined to be arrested. She really did stuff that was way, way worse than a lot of other people, seeming bent on getting arrested. And naturally, because she was a princess, they were very reluctant to arrest her. So finally, though, she did get arrested for unpaid taxes. And she went through that whole cycle we already saw of going to court, having her jewelry seized to pay for it, and having that go up for auction. One more time, the suffragettes went to the auction house on the day of the auction and they bought Sophia's necklace, even though this time the auctioneer refused to lower the starting bid in response to their refusal to bid on it. Sophia remained a steadfast supporter of the WSPU until Britain entered World War I. The movement for women's suffrage continued, but the WSPU ended its militant activities at that time. Sophia also really had other things to worry about at that point, and we will talk about them after one more brief sponsor break. When World War I began, Sophia's sister Catherine was still in Germany. She had lived there at this point for a really long time, and she had also expressed, unsurprisingly, some pro-German sentiments. So no matter how she tried, Sophia could not convince British officials to help her get her sister out of Germany in spite of the threat of war. Instead, in 1915, Sophia became a Red Cross nurse, primarily looking after the many Indian men who were deployed to Europe and were wounded in action. She also started raising funds for the Red Cross's efforts to help the Indian troops. Also in 1915, Bamba wrote to her sisters to tell them she had gotten married in India. Eventually, Sophia started trying to plan a massive fundraiser to help the Indian soldiers. However, her past came back to haunt her. 
Officials were distrustful of her and they were reluctant to give her the go ahead. It took months for the plan to finally be approved. And the fundraiser, now known as India Day, was scheduled for September 20th of 1918. Sadly, a few months earlier, on June 8th of that year, Sophia received a telegram that her eldest brother, Victor, had died of a heart attack in France. Sophia had to carry on with her fundraising effort in the midst of her grief. Fortunately, the fundraiser went off beautifully, and she raised enough money to pay for about 50,000 huts to provide housing to Indian soldiers. And then the war ended not too much longer after that. Sophia finally made contact with her sister after many attempts to get a passport for her. Although Lena Schaefer was ill and malnourished, Catherine did make arrangements to visit Britain. At this point, the movement for Indian nationalism was also on the rise back in India. The Duleep Singh name didn't have nearly the same recognition or prestige in India that had had it had had in earlier years. So the India office became less particularly compelled to make sure people in India knew that the Duleep Singh family was being treated well. The surviving family members gradually got less and less help from the India office. Sophia's money became scarce. Eventually, she could no longer even afford to heat her home. In 1918, women over 30 who were householders, as well as a few others, were given the right to vote in Britain. In the years following that, Sophia became less and less able to make ends meet. Her brother hired her a new housekeeper named Bosie, hoping to ease some of Sophia's burdens and also keep the house running within her means. The two women became friends, although their relationship could be stormy, and Sophia eventually became godmother to Bosie's daughter. Sophia's brother, Freddie, died following a heart attack in August of 1926 at the age of 58. Her half-sister, Irene, committed suicide in 1926. Both Bamba and their other half-sister, Pauline, contested Irene's will in a battle that was both public and very ugly. And this was really embarrassing to Sophia, as Irene had left all her money to a home for unwanted children. So her relationship to Pauline and Bamba was never really very comfortable again. Yeah, she was also the only one of her sisters who had ever really tried to befriend the younger half-sisters. Catherine and Bamba were both understandably bitter about their father's new family. Two years after that whole affair with the will was settled, in 1928, women in Britain were given the right to vote following the same terms as those that applied to men, which was an extension of the rights that had been granted in 1918. Lena Schaefer died on August 26th of 1938. Catherine Duleep Singh elected to remain in Germany until Hitler's rise made it unsafe for her to stay there. She and Lena had lived very frugally, so she had money to live on. She returned to a house she owned in England and asked Sophia to come live in a bungalow on the property. Some years later, Sophia's half-sister Pauline died. That was on April 10th, 1941. Although after the falling out with her family, after the other half-sister Irene's will... This was actually unknown until relatively recently. She had just kind of faded from the from the map. Catherine died following a heart attack in 1942. After her sister's death, Sophia became increasingly depressed. She had housed several children during the Blitz, but by 1943, they had all gone home. Her goddaughter, Drovna, became one of her sole comforts. Drovna was actually still living as of 2012. I'm not totally sure about whether she's still living today. Sophia Duleep Singh lived long enough to see women in Britain get the right to vote. 
to see India become independent and to see part of the former Sikh kingdom partitioned into Pakistan. But she had little to occupy her mind or her time as she got older, and her health was increasingly poor. She developed a tumor behind her eye that she refused to have treated, even though it caused her an incredible amount of pain. She died in her sleep on August 22, 1948, at the age of 71. Although she had remained Christian all of her life, Sophia opted for a Sikh cremation with her ashes to be scattered in India. This duty fell to her last surviving sister, Bamba, who was by then in her 80s. Then Bamba died in 1957. That is the story of Sophia Duleep Singh. And I'm serious. If this is interesting to you at all, read the book Sophia, Princess Suffragette Revolutionary by Anita Anand. It goes into all kinds of things we haven't really touched on here, mostly for the sake of time. (laughs) It gets into a lot more about the movement for Indian independence and how that had parallels to the movement for women's suffrage. It has tons more detail about the lives of Sophia and her sisters and her father. It's really an enjoyable read. It was obviously uh, one of the sources used in this episode. Um, And if you like her story... There's so much more of it in there. Do you have some fabulous listener mail to polish off this fascinating tale? Ew, it's from Rick, and it's also really fascinating. Rick says, hi, Tracy and Holly. I was listening to your podcast on redlining, and you mentioned in passing that the FHA loans didn't allow farming, that there were separate loans for farmers. I've been doing a bunch of research on homesteading lately and have a little more info on that point. I thought y'all might want to know. Here's an expert excerpt from a book called Urban Farming, written by Thomas J. Fox. Quote, some 50,000 hogs lived in Manhattan until about 1860. About 7% of Seattleites owned cows in 1900, including the majority in North Seattle neighborhoods. A 1906 census of chickens in urban areas found, on average, one clucker for every two city dwellers. That's the end of that quote, I think. In a 1932 Los Angeles Times article titled There's No Room for Her, the writer estimated the goat milk population of Los Angeles County at 2,700, an amount that would be over 12,000 today if maintained at the same per capita letter level. Uh, as late as 1940, a census of agriculture counted 352 milk cows in Brooklyn, 562 in Washington, D.C., and 15,638 in Dallas County, Texas. Clearly, our urban life has changed. Uh, I want to be clear, I'm not completely sure where in that part the quoted material ended. Uh, But it's definitely over by this part. Closely related to the disappearance of urban agriculture in American cities has been the self-image of a progressive, commercially-minded middle class and its idea of how a city should look, aided, of course, by the advent of refrigeration and cheap transportation. Those to suffer, of course, were often the poor immigrants and minority groups who lived lives closer to the subsistence level. Brown notes that in the 1920s and 1930s, urban livestock were specifically excluded by restrictive covenants in developing whites-only Seattle neighborhoods, and that Federal Housing Administration loans uh, applications from the 1930s also banned livestock in a national level. I just realized I'm not actually sure where the quote ends. It might not be until the very end of this thing that I just said. Uh, So it seems, this part now I'm totally sure is Rick's note. Uh, So it seems that FHA-enabled redlining is also responsible for much of the food desertification of inner-city neighborhoods as well. 
Thanks for your awesome podcasts. They make my long commute much more enjoyable. Rick, this letter is fascinating for two reasons. One, I had no idea of any of that. Two, during the Great Depression, my grandmother, her father, was a Methodist preacher. And their parsonage was within the city limits of the city of Winston-Salem. And they kept getting in trouble for keeping pigs on the parsonage property. And they were sort of like, it is the Great Depression and I'm a preacher. What do you want me to do? (laughs) So thank you, Rick, for writing us this awesome letter. Uh, If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. And we're also on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. If you would like to learn lots of cool stuff, come to our parent company website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. There's all kinds of stuff about all kinds of subjects. And then our website, HowStuffWorks.com, is full of show notes, We're going to have a nice link to the book that I have talked about in both parts of these episodes, so you can have a look at that yourself if you were interested in that. We also have archive of every episode ever, uh, lots of cool stuff on our website. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 